Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, the 1st of March. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Katrina Blowers. And in this episode of The Briefing, the Russian nuclear threat. Russia is, for all of the um, backwardsness of its economy, it it is a fully-fledged nuclear power with the capacity to, frankly, destroy much of the world if it chose to uh, launch all those weapons. A deep dive on Russia's nuclear capabilities in today's episode. First, here are today's headlines. Lismore and surrounding areas have been devastated by the biggest flood on record, with around 1,000 people already being rescued and rain set to continue. Our previous record flood was 12.4 metres back in 1954. We've gone to 14.4 metres, so an additional two metres of water. That's Lismore Mayor Stephen Krieg talking about the Wilson River on the ABC. The images coming out of the Northern Rivers are just so sad. People desperately calling for help, climbing on their roofs, people rescuing friends and livestock in dinghies, buildings floating away, buildings submerged. It's just so intense. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And the mayor says that after, you know, things calm down a bit, which hopefully will be sometime by the end of this week, they're going to have to reassess the the height of that levy and and potentially raise it um, because no one ever thought that this would happen. So 16,000 people are subject to evacuation orders while 200 defence personnel have been helping with sandbagging and also logistics. Uh, Bad news news though, that rain bomb, we thought it was going to go out to sea, but it is heading south. Sydney has been forecast to receive 200 millimetres tonight. It doesn't really disappear for quite a while. It tracks down the coast. The low itself will intensify. Wow, that's Grace Legg from the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, the devastation in southeast Queensland continues. Around 15,000 homes in 140 suburbs are underwater this morning. Um, Eight people have died now. With all schools in Brisbane and the Gold Coast remaining closed today, that is, that's huge. 140 suburbs of all of those schools closed. Yeah, it is. And um, the kids are being put to work with flood cleanup, though. So get to work, kids. Get out there and grab a mop. Um, There are homes, Tom, that are just completely up to their roofs. And the thing about this flood that makes it different to everyone references 2011 Mm. uh, is that a lot of the areas that went under in 2011, yet they're still going under this time. But there are new areas and new homes that people didn't think were going to flood that have gone under this time. And also, residents are scratching their heads and and getting quite concerned and I'm sure this is going to be explored over coming days because they were told that flood mitigation strategies after 2011 meant that their properties wouldn't go under so many of them didn't get insurance and this is for inner city properties Mm. because it was just too expensive to get insurance but they thought they'd be okay and also the flood warnings came out quite late on Saturday night mostly when people were asleep so I'm sure this is going to be explored in a little bit. And what about the criticism of Anastasia Palaszczuk? Is it the case that she underplayed the threat and people are quite angry about that? So on Saturday when that rain bomb was still in place uh, and the first releases were happening from Wyvernhoe Dam, they predicted that it was going to be okay, that it wouldn't be as severe as 2011 and I think a lot of people breathed a huge sigh of relief Mm. over that Um, and she's really had to go on the defence in press conferences over the last 24 hours. This is Mother Nature. I can't control Mother Nature. The people of this state can't control Mother Nature. And sometimes they throw stuff at us and we've got to deal with it. 
Right. So that's yeah. her sort of trying to defend her earlier warning, which really wasn't severe enough. There was a huge inquiry into the mismanagement of flood releases uh, from the dam in 2011. There are more releases predicted today and over the rest of the week and more storms on the way too for Queensland. So uh, this is going to be one to watch. Dozens of civilians have been killed and hundreds more injured after Russian forces began firing on civilian areas of Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city. Ukrainian authorities are calling the attacks a war crime. They say the shelling is happening mostly in residential areas where there is no critical infrastructure. The shelling is some of the heaviest Russia has unleashed so far, which began right as Ukraine and Russian officials were meeting for peace talks on the Belarusian border. Now, a Ukrainian presidential advisor coming out of those talks has said the negotiations are difficult and the Russian side is still extremely biased. Um, Ukraine wanted an immediate ceasefire, obviously, and the withdrawal of Russian forces, and those talks have ended with no major breakthrough. At least 352 Ukrainian civilians, including 14 children, have been killed since last Thursday when the war began, but that real figure is feared to be much higher, and we're going to talk more about the Russian nuclear threat in our briefing in just a moment. Yeah, and those sanctions have gotten interesting as well. Um, Switzerland have sort of stepped back from their normally neutral stance and frozen the bank accounts of several Mm. high-profile Russians, including the president, his foreign minister, also a number of Russian corporations. So that's really interesting. You also had Germany changing their position on supplying weapons yesterday. So Europe really seems to be rallying a bit harder than many people predicted, potentially harder than Vladimir Putin predicted. Meanwhile, the federal government is telling Australians not to go to Ukraine or to Russia to join the war. Do not travel. That's Maurice Payne, the foreign minister. So the Ukrainian embassy in Australia has fielded about 20 calls from people interested in heading there to fight. So a relatively small number, but it was enough for Maurice Payne to make this statement and warn people they might be breaking the law if they go. Australians who travel to fight uh, in Ukraine with a non-government armed group on either side of the conflict uh, or who recruit someone else to do so may be committing a criminal offence. So this comes after Ukraine's president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, said on the weekend he would welcome overseas fighters and would consider establishing a foreign legion to combat the Russian invasion. And just as COVID restrictions pretty much disappear around many parts of the country, the WA Premier Mark McGowan has imposed even tighter ones. The latest advice is we should now expect to see WA reach the peak of cases in the next two to three weeks or so. If we want a set of measures to be effective, they need to come in sooner rather than later. Yeah, so these harsher Level 2 public health measures will come into force just after midnight on Thursday. That's when the state is reopening its borders. Also, as WA experiences around 1,000 cases a day. And there's around 12 people in hospital, so... (laughs) It is just a bizarre set of of data to try and understand coming out of WA. These restrictions, though, are not too intense. Crowd limits are at 50% on stadiums, so still still stadiums are hosting people. Um, Visitors Mm. in homes at 10 people. Hospitality venues capped at 150 with a two square metre rule. And face masks for students from grade three onwards. So... They do seem like measures just to slow down the wave that they're facing at the moment, but it is predicted to only last a few weeks. So, um, you know, in a month's time in WA, things could look very normal. And I guess these sort of 
awkward and slightly confusing measures and a strange mm. timing of all these events may soon be in the past. Donald Trump is still the frontrunner to lead the Republican Party to the 2024 US presidential election. So Trump's been speaking at what's called the Conservative Political Action Conference, um, which is an annual conservative rally where potential candidates make their pitches. And 59% of people there said they'd vote for Trump if the 2024 Republican primary were held today. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came in second. He had 28% of the vote, while the former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, he was a very distant third with 2% of the vote. Now, to put this into context, Trump got 70% of the vote last year, so 59% this year. DeSantis, uh, 21%. So the Florida governor is closing the gap, Mm. but he still has a bit of a way to go. Yeah, so interesting to learn more about this Ron DeSantos, um, Florida governor, as time passes and see if he closes the gap on Trump even more. All right, let's go deep on Putin's nuclear capabilities. So the idea that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has nuclear weapons ever more ready is sounding quite alarming and I think has a lot of us worried. So we're going to explore how concerning that threat really is. Peter Jennings is the Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which is Australia's leading think tank on security policy. Peter, thank you for joining us. We hear the news that Vladimir Putin is putting his nuclear forces on high alert. Is that some kind of bluff or should we be quite concerned? Well, any reference to using nuclear weapons is something to be really concerned about, and even more so when it comes from Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. So, yes, I think this is something to be absolutely concerned about. Could he be bluffing? Yeah, but that's not a risk that anyone can afford to take when it comes to talking about nuclear weapons. I sense a hint of panic in what's going on. Clearly, his military strategy in Ukraine has not delivered the results that they were looking for. They were, I think, expecting an almost triumphant parade into Kiev and the Ukrainians handing them sort of bunches of flowers and what they found instead is pretty hard-fought street-by-street resistance. So in calling for or in talking about the potential use of nuclear weapons, I think we're seeing a bit of an air of desperation coming from Vladimir Putin now. What's your knowledge of what it actually means to for, for Putin to put his nuclear forces on high alert? Um, some reports that I've read have land and sea-based weapons always ready to use and other airborne nukes require a bit more preparation. Is that your understanding of it? Both Russia and the United States have nuclear forces at uh, full readiness to launch weapons all the time, 24-7 submarines at sea and then, as you've said, air-launched uh, weapons and ground-launched weapons that are not much further behind. A few days ago, Putin said that he was putting all of his forces on high alert, which I guess means to say that both all elements of the triad, the um, air, land, as well as sea, are ready to go. Now what I think we're getting is an even more sort of aggressive statement from Putin, which is kind of hinting in a not very specific way that somehow nuclear weapons might be you know, the decisive way to finish the Ukraine crisis. So over the last week, you know, he's now twice referred to nuclear weapons. It's hardly surprising that, you know, this is now getting sort of global reactions. 
And I would think also there's probably a big issue inside Russia as well because there will be people uh, inside the Kremlin, inside the military hierarchy of the Russian military asking to themselves, is, is this the best thing to do? I mean, they'll be, I think, as worried as, uh, as everybody else. So what would a nuclear attack actually look like? Because there hasn't been a great history of them. We have the Hiroshima and Nagasaki style bombs that people remember from decades ago. And that's, I think, what most people imagine, these enormous bombs that pretty much decimate entire cities. Is that what we're talking about? Or would there be smaller, more tactical uses of nuclear weapons in a scenario like this? Gosh, you know, it's really hard to think about what any sensible strategy might look like involving nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, if Putin's thinking about a use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine as a way to try to force the Zelensky government to capitulate and sort of surrender to the Russians, I guess they might think about using a nuclear weapon for a demonstration effect. So you detonate a weapon over a fairly remote area as a sort of a sign of your resolve. This used to be talked about actually in the 1960s and 70s when nuclear strategy was kind of being thought through by the Americans and the Russians. So I'm kind of digging back to the textbooks to think about what that might mean. If you put a nuclear weapon over a city, even a small tactical nuclear weapon, which is to say a relatively small payload of weapons enriched plutonium, it's going to obliterate a city. So you will get hundreds of thousands of casualties depending on the target, which is frankly just unavoidable. And then, of course, you go up from there. Would he consider uh, putting a nuke on uh, Kiev? Well, you know, you could see millions of people killed. So, I mean, that's why it's so hard to see how this plays into any sensible military strategy. The alternative is that Putin thinks this might be a way of coercing President Zelensky into surrender. But quite how that works too, particularly when Russian forces are, are not exactly making rapid progress on the ground, that's also difficult to see the logic of that. What do we actually know about Russia's current nuclear capability? How, how big is it? And is it bigger than, say, the United States? Uh, yes, I think Russia is now the largest um, holder of nuclear weapons, or certainly they're in pretty close parity with the US. So they have thousands of weapons. They have a working triad, which means to say, as we've discussed, uh, nuclear weapons that can be launched from submarines, nuclear weapons that are on um, aircraft, They have uh, nuclear weapons actually buried into the ground in silos and also nuclear weapons on trains, which are mobile, obviously, and can move around Russia, making them much harder to target. Russia is, for all of the um, backwardsness of its economy, it it is a fully-fledged nuclear power with the capacity to, frankly, destroy much of the world if it chose to uh, launch all those weapons. A number of European countries are now sending weapons to Ukraine, uh, including Germany, which is quite significant. How substantial is this contribution of weapons compared to what the Ukrainians are up against? Well, it's too little and it's too late, frankly, in terms of what's going on in the country. Um, Had this been a sort of a more coordinated process to arm the Ukrainian military several years ago, say, for example, after the invasion of Crimea in, uh, in 2014, that would have presented a much stronger deterrent to the Russians and it would have put the Ukrainians in a better position to fight um, over their ground as they are now. But with the weapons that they have and the weapons that have been supplied to them in the last few weeks, uh, the Ukrainians are putting up a pretty tough show of force. 
there's some things about the campaign that puzzle me, Tom. I mean, we're not really seeing the full use of Russian armoured vehicles in the way that I was expecting. Uh, they've tended to use airstrikes and special forces. So they're moving into cities, but they're not necessarily doing it in armoured columns to kind of plant a flag in Madan Square and then sort of declare victory. The Russian strategy has really been to try to decapitate leadership, you know, to catch or kill uh, Zelensky, his cabinet. Clearly in that they've failed to do so. And I think what we found is that uh, the Russians have been nowhere near as prepared to um, stage a mass assault as might have been expected when you looked at the build-up of those uh, forces around Ukraine's borders. You mentioned the speed of getting those weapons to where they're needed. How also do we make sure that they don't end up in Russian hands? Well, if you're sending them into a war zone, you can't be absolutely sure about it. I mean, I would have thought that we're talking about shoulder-fired weapons that you could use to disable a tank or possibly similar light weapons that two people could use to shoot down a helicopter if they were close enough. So these are not big things. They're not tanks, for example. I assume also that we're talking about ammunition and and light arms because uh, presumably there's going to be a real demand for both of those things. Okay, let's speculate on how this might play out and we won't be doing it. We're going to leave it to you because you're the expert. (laughs) If Russia do take control of Kiev and Kharkov, how would they actually maintain control and what would they do next? Well, uh, you know, we in the in the democratic West have had some experiences which I would have thought Putin has paid more attention to over the last couple of decades, which was, you know, the quick victory in Iraq followed by the long, painful occupation and a similar story in, in Afghanistan. Judging by the behaviour of the Ukrainians, what we will see if the Russians take over, and in fact it's an interesting question to ask what exactly does takeover mean, but if the Russians take over in some sense, I think their forces will be attacked by the Ukrainian military, by militia, by Ukrainian citizens that can get access to weapons. And you just would not want to be a Russian conscript in a tank sitting on a street corner somewhere in a town because the chances of of having a missile uh, come up the exhaust pipe would be reasonably high, I would think. Peter, I found it pretty interesting when you were talking earlier about how Russia would manage to hold on to these big cities like Kiev or, or Kharkiv, that they'd be surrounded by millions of increasingly armed civilians along with the Ukraine military. And it really begs the question, what was Russia's plan in the first place? It also makes me wonder what was different about Crimea that Russia were able to move in quite quickly and hold it in 2014. So the big difference in Crimea and also the areas around Donbass, the two eastern so-called rebel provinces, is that they are largely ethnically Russian speaking. Mm. And so there was a much greater willingness to support the arrival of of the Russians when the invasion took place in 2014. The further west you get, effectively, the the more um, Ukrainian speaking, pro-European Union, pro-NATO, the views of the Ukrainians. And I think the other thing that's happened here is that even if some Ukrainians were kind of like balanced between support for Russia and the West around 2014, the effect of that earlier invasion has been to strengthen popular support for the idea of Ukraine as a democracy and part of the European Union and not under Russian control. Particularly, it would seem to be amongst young Ukrainians. So, you know, that's an effect of Putin's earlier invasion. There is some proportion of the um, Ukrainian population 
which are clearly supporters of Russians, but they tend to be more geographically dispersed to around Russia's borders. And that does give rise to one thought that a potential peace settlement is that you see some further division of Ukraine to maybe split those so-called independent provinces, the provinces that Putin declared independent before his forces moved in, along with the Crimea to say, okay, well, they're part of Russia. We're not necessarily happy about that, but that's the outcome from the conflict. And then the rest of Ukraine gets on to do its business as a uh, as a democracy. Would Putin accept that? Um, he wouldn't a week ago. Um, absolutely not, because I think he thought that victory was in pretty close reach. Would he accept it today? Maybe, because again, as I say, this, this sort of the whiff of panic from the Kremlin uh, is, I think, one of the most striking things to have emerged in the last uh, 24 hours. That was Peter Jennings, who's the executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And interesting in the the back end of that interview, Katrina, Peter Jennings really characterising the Russian strategy here as desperate. Yeah, it was quite scathing, wasn't it? Um, Is there a bigger game at play that, you know, Putin has yet to reveal his hand or has his ego just gotten the better of him in this regard and he's really misread the tea leaves? I guess time will tell and hopefully not before too many more lives are lost. When you look at the strategy and the way they're moving in on these two cities and the fact that it hasn't happened yet... You do wonder what that longer-term vision was. Um, as you say, Peter was hinting that there, there could be a negotiation over those eastern areas and mm. Crimea that might play into what's happening here. Um, but it's hard to imagine how they would have held on to these big cities that are surrounded by millions of armed Ukrainians. So, yeah, very interesting chess pieces being moved here and you have to question the strategy. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to speak to an Australian journalist reporting on the ground in Ukraine. He's actually been inside some of the bunkers. Listener.